Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. I know someone, a prosecutor actually, who is fascinated by crime stories. She says that Silence of the Lamb is her Star Wars. And why not? Crime stories, especially true crime, about the likes of Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy or Jeffrey Dahmer, fascinate and take our thinking to the edges of human behavior. Understanding what makes these people tick truly stretches the human imagination. This is exactly what investigative reporter Maureen Callahan does in her new book, American Predator. Maureen Callahan is an award-winning investigative journalist who's covered everything from pop culture to politics. Her writing has appeared in Vanity Fair, New York, and Spin. She's currently critic at large at the New York Post, and it is my pleasure to welcome Maureen Callahan to talk about American Predator, the hunt for the most meticulous serial killer of the 21st century. Maureen, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, thank you so much for having me and for that amazing introduction. Well, it is a delight to have you here. Why don't we know the name Israel Keys the way we know that that other pantheon of names that I mentioned in the introduction? That is such a great question, um, especially because uh, at a certain point in this case, um, the FBI uh, went to the public at large for help, uh, asking people across the country um, if they had ever encountered Israel Keys, um, if they had reason to believe that he was responsible for any uh, local cases in which people went missing or were found uh, mysteriously uh, dead. Um, and they they posted a timeline of his travels uh, to the FBI's official website, and then the case uh, sort of was pulled back from public view to a large extent, um, and that uh, became just uh, one of the multiple mysteries um, that I wound up investigating over the five years I spent um, researching and reporting this book. Why was the case pulled back? What was the object of that as far as law enforcement was concerned? You know, they've never said. Um, and if you go online, you can still see some uh, interviews uh, that the FBI did with Keyes. Um, but uh, I came to believe it was several factors. Uh, one, there were um, many mistakes made uh, during the investigation. Um, there was uh, severe overreach, if it, and that's putting it mildly, by the uh, federal prosecutor's office um, up in Anchorage. Um, this case, at a certain point, went officially from serial murder to terrorism. Uh, the FBI has never made that public. Uh, I found that out through fighting uh, with the Department of Justice and with the federal prosecutor's office for files relating to this case, for interviews I learned they were actively hiding. Um, so, and and then of course we we have. Uh, you know, cold cases throughout the nation, a few of which I explore in this book that um, law enforcement, be it local or be it at the level of the FBI, uh, has has reason to believe that uh, that, that uh, Keyes was responsible for. 
one of the things that makes this story so complicated is how far and wide Keyes committed these murders. Unlike a lot of these other uh, serial killers, he didn't stay close to home. Talk about that. This was the thing that was just so, this was, this was the thing that got me hooked immediately when I first, first read about this case in very late 2012. This, this MO that even the top minds at the FBI had never before encountered. So Keyes would, um, when, when the urge basically struck him to commit murder, he would fly out of Anchorage where he lived with his girlfriend and his very young daughter, uh, to whom by all accounts he was extremely devoted. Um, he would buy a plane ticket and he would proceed to, to as, he, as he would call it, go dark. He would turn off his cell phone and rip out the battery. He would use only cash. He would fly into a major hub, rent a car, drive hundreds of miles to dig up one of the multiple kill kits he buried all over the country, which remain buried at unknown locations all over the country. These kits were five-gallon Home Depot buckets that Keys filled with guns, ammo, zip ties, cash from bank robberies he had previously committed, and Drano to accelerate human decomposition. He would then go hunting for a victim or victims because he sometimes liked to take pairs of people in either couples or a mother and a son or, you know, any sort of permutation you could think of, um, abduct them. It could be broad daylight. It could be the dead of night. Uh, no victim profile, by the way, it didn't matter who you are, or what you looked like. Um, which is also very, very, very unusual. Uh, take them to another location, rape them, kill them, move the bodies to another location, preferably another state, dispose of the bodies quickly and without leaving any DNA behind, and then getting back in his car and putting hundreds, if not thousands of miles between himself and that crime scene, no one the wiser. How was he able to fly in some cases with these kill kits that he had? Well, he never flew with the kill kits. The kill kits he had buried on previous trips. Uh, so he would fly with what he would fly with. He flew with a lot of guns and he would break them apart. And sometimes he would put them in his carry on. And one of the questions I had and it's, it still remains a question, we'll see if we ever get an answer, is how uh, someone in a post-9-11 world is buying all these one-way tickets and is never once flagged by Homeland Security, is going through airport security with guns in his carry-on, and he's never pulled aside once. When do we know or when do we are led to believe the first murder took place? So I spoke to the agents who worked this case about this a lot, and they say that they believe his first victim was killed shortly after he got out of the military. He served in the U.S. Army for two years. Um, and parts of his military file, the parts that were disclosed to me, um indicated that the army was looking into, they suspected him of 
a homicide at um, right near where he was stationed at Fort Lewis McCord in uh, Washington State that they had recovered um, a human skull nearby. Um, I, however, after getting documents from the Department of Justice that were heretofore unreleased, there were two little girls who were murdered in the very small town in Washington State where Keyes was living. He, w- he would have been around 18 at the time. Um, he was well into, uh, into his development as, as not just a psychopath, but as a, as a budding serial killer. Um, I mean, all the hallmarks were there. Arsons, breaking and entering, uh, the torture and killing of animals. Um, the, the first girl who went missing was um, Colville's most famous resident. Her name was Julie Harris, and she was 12 years old. She was a Paralympian who uh, was missing both feet. Um, and she left for school one day and never came back. And her body was discovered near a river, I believe. Her prosthetic feet were nearby. She had last been seen in the company of a very tall, thin young man. And Keyes was questioned about her and another young girl in Colville who had also gone missing and then was found dead along with her mother. Um, And he claimed that he really had no recollection of that case and really hadn't heard of it, Uh, which uh, that in itself was extremely hard to believe given that his sole real reason for living was, was to kill other people. A case like that would most certainly have captivated him. Um, and he would have relished every detail of it. Uh, when the FBI went and interviewed, um, his girlfriend at the time, uh, who had been engaged to him, you know, she was, she was shocked when they were, were telling him what they, what they had him arrested for. Um, and at the end of the interview, the agent said to her, is there anything you want to ask us? And she said, yes. Did he kill those two little girls in Colville? At what point did authorities realize they had a serial killer on their hands? At what point did they make the connection between some of these murders? Well, for Jeff Bell, who is one of the lead investigators on this case and a very, very seasoned investigator, it was immediate and it was instinctual. He told me he walked into the room shortly after Keyes' arrest in Texas and he said, I felt the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. I, and he said, I knew this guy had done this before. And um, he was the one who sort of, every conclusion that he sort of reached, he reached the right conclusion sooner than any other investigator on that case. And they will all tell you that. Um, so his instincts were pretty unerring. Instincts plus experience. Um, but one of the one of the reasons I explore this power struggle between the FBI agents and and the federal prosecutor for control of this case and control of this investigation, which they all knew was a potential star making one, um, was that first formal interrogation of Keys in the connection of the disappearance of a teenage girl from Anchorage, and. They know, they can tell by his demeanor, they can tell by the cold-blooded way in which he's talking and reacting to his arrest, that he's done this before. Um, And they have very, 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 very little evidence connecting him to her disappearance. 
and he's got a story and it's an outlandish one. But if he sticks to that story, the chances that they will ever find Samantha Koenig, let alone charge him, let alone stop him from walking out that room, a free man, rely on leveraging almost zero evidence into a full confession. And, you know, the confession was also something that that has been hidden from public view. It's never been logged as existing anywhere. I was able to obtain it through a source who wishes to remain anonymous. But you can read it in the book and you can see how artfully and inartfully it can be done because the federal prosecutor demanded that he was going to run it. Um, he very quickly begins to indicate how out of his depth he is. And the big concern, too, is that Keyes is a predator and a predator can smell fear. And the federal prosecutor had never, ever dealt with a violent criminal, let alone a criminal of this magnitude before. And Steve Payne, who's the lead FBI agent on the case, had already war-gamed this interrogation out. And he is extremely thoughtful and extremely methodical. And the way he described it to me is there are some investigators who like to go into an interrogation uh, with with these sort of limitations, not much evidence, with a ton of props, right? Like mm-hmm. they'll take a bunch of boxes and they'll go into a room and they'll snip, smack them down and say, this is everything we have on you. And, you know, in fact, those boxes are empty. But Steve likes to go with a more minimalist approach. His approach is less is more. And and counterintuitively, what he would do in that situation is sit there very calmly and quietly and just say, I'm not going to tell you everything we have on you. And you 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 you've experienced that power struggle it's it's really among three people it keys uh, the prosecutor and Steve Payne um and and you 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 experience it and you 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 know i really i really wanted the reader to feel like they were sitting like next to Steve Payne as he's like dying inside and struggling to stay calm yet wrest control of this interview back before it goes off the rails and and they lose any chances of finding Samantha. How much of it also had to do with Keys getting a little bit sloppy at some point? Oh, yeah, definitely. You are right about that. He was, by his own admission, spiraling out of control by the time they caught him. The way he described it was that he could... He would sort of, it sounds weird to say, but the most colloquial, colloquial way I could put it is, you know, it was, it was like getting it out of his system and, and he would commit a homicide or homicides. And then, then he would go rob a bank, which would sort of help, help him calm down even more weirdly. And then, and then he would be able to go home and resume his life as this construction worker and, and father and, and, and never raise an eyebrow. Um, but towards the end, the urges were coming closer and closer and closer together. And, um, you know, the FBI calls Samantha Keyes' last known victim. But um, agents on the case, and Jeff Bell in particular, told me that he is convinced that Keyes took at least one, if not two, people in Texas after killing Samantha right before he was arrested. Um, And one of those cases, um, which is very likely Keyes, is... um, explored in the book, and, and, I, and I hope uh, merits a, a reopening. What do we understand about Key's psychopathology and how it is both the same and, and even different in some cases from some of these other serial killers that we're more familiar with? 
Well, his methodology was certainly different. Uh, his psychopathy, I'm not quite sure. Um, his intellect may be different, but um, he, 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 he shares just about all the traits that a, a lust-driven serial killer would have. Um, and, and they are all psychopaths. So, um, but to get to the root, I, I really wanted to get to the root, and I think this is related to your question of, of how and why he got this way. Um, and, you know, it, it, I sort of explore this idea in the book, too, you know, that the, the origins of psychopathy, um, what causes a monster like this to exist among us, you know, it, it, it is an existential question that is hung over criminal profiling and investigations forever. And and we still don't know very much. I, I, I was lucky enough to speak to the great legendary profiler Roy Hazelwood um, before he passed away. And I, I spoke to him about this case specifically. And I asked him, you know, are they born or are they made? What do you think? And he said he didn't know. Uh, he didn't anticipate that we would know anytime soon. He said the earliest incidents he encountered of psychopathy was uh, the case of a three-year-old who had been caught by his mother in the act of autoerotic asphyxiation. And his mother took him to the pediatrician who said, don't worry, he'll grow out of this. And, and that boy grew up to become a serial killer. Um, I really wanted to explore Keyes' childhood and upbringing because I felt there would be some answer in that. Um, nothing was known about it when I, I, I was writing this book uh, and and the five-year span that I spent, I, I couldn't find anything. And it wasn't until I, um, I sued for parts of this case and, 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 and got the uh, psychological evaluation, uh, which I knew would, would be a gold mine. Um, and I was also able to, I spoke to his mother several times and she had never spoken to a reporter before. And I don't believe she has since. Um, and, and, emerged with this uh, picture of a childhood that was so brutal and unbelievable. I mean, he was raised off the grid in, in this corner of Washington state, you know, uh, his, his parents were fundamentalists. They shot, they went around from cult to cult to cult. They had a deep distrust, if not loathing of the federal government. He was one of 10 siblings. They lived in extreme poverty. They were all home births. They never saw a doctor. They never went to school. They had to hunt and dress their own game for food. They lived in tents for seven years while their father was building them a house by hand. Even when they were done, they had no plumbing. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, if you want a cauldron of <laughs> potential, uh, you know, environmental factors that could, that could cause something like this. I mean, they're, they're there in abundance, but then again, you, you say, well, Israel Keys was one of 10 and the only one to become a serial killer. So what does that tell us? And that really is the, the fascinating part of these stories is that it is, I think, fundamentally impossible for us to really get our head around what makes these people tick. We can read about it. We can try and understand it. We can understand the science. We can talk to these people. But really trying to, to understand it really does, as, as I mentioned in the introduction, sort of stretch the human imagination in, in pretty unique ways. Yeah, I think they're the, um, they're the ultimate in terror because they are people who walk among us and live among us and look like us, 
But to a one, if you get them in the chair, they'll say, you know, I'm, I'm imitating what it is to be a human being. <laughs> Maureen Callahan, the book is American Predator, the hunt for the most meticulous serial killer of the 21st century. Maureen, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, I thank you so much. Thank you for uh, the conversation and your, uh, your great questions. Thank, thank you. Thank you.